Please stand for the reading of the word. Welcome to our service today. We are in the book of Samuel, chapters 5 and 6. We're going to look at both of those chapters in their entirety as to the story, but we'll only look at a portion of each chapter for our reading. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. And when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Now moving to chapter 6. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them apart upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These were the golden tumors that the Philistines turned, returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ascalon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And the Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. The Lord struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God and to him we go up away from us. So they sent messengers to the habitus of Kerarath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned to the ark of the Lord. Come now and take it up to you. And the men of Kerarath Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kariath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 
The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is quite an Old Testament story, and we only read about a half of it. But I want to preach out of a New Testament text, if I may. In the New Testament, a very sophisticated author of a very sophisticated and very thorough book, the book of Hebrews, among the many things he tries to impress upon his Christian believers is this truth. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And that's exactly what the Old Testament story was teaching. That exact principle that has never changed. It's just as true today as it was back in the days of the judges, back in the days of Eli and Samuel and Saul and David and all of the ancients. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That was really the main question. Is, is God the true God? Is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God of Israel the true God, the living God? Is He mighty? Is He almighty? And will He destroy? And will He save? Those are the questions. They were the questions then and they're the questions now. Is He the true God? In this pagan culture, we spoke a little bit about the Philistines last week and we said they were technologically advanced. They weren't Canaanites. They had uh, the control of all of the smithing and we'll see in this particular passage they did a little gold smithing. They were in charge of all of the technology. They were a powerful people. They were big. They were strong. They had five fortified cities that were just south and slightly west of the nation of Israel. And they dominated Israel for about a century and a half until finally under King David, they had rest from the menace of the Philistines. But the Philistines were very sophisticated people, not only intellectually and culturally, but they were very sophisticated religiously. And you'll see here that their priests, their diviners, had a pretty good awareness of how things ought to go. They were sort of afraid that there was a true and a living God, a transcendent God, an almighty God. And they were a little nervous about that. But the culture in which they lived was very materialistic. It was very rationalistic. It was very much a culture that was turned in upon itself in terms of understanding might and power and strength. In fact, we saw it didn't make much of it, but last week's text, they were good at motivation, getting themselves bucked up for the battle, positive thinking, ready to go. They were very, very, very sophisticated people, but they, they had a problem. When they captured the Ark of the Lord, it was a symbol of their victory, and so they took it to their capital city, Ashdod, which was the one nearest the coastline, the northernmost city of the Philistines, closest to Israel in terms of, uh, of the seashore. And they put the Ark of the Covenant, which was a representation and a symbol of the God of Israel, and they put it in their temple to their God. Their God was Dagon. Dagon was a very well-known God in the ancient world. You've seen pictures of him. He's a man with a beard, has a canonical uh, tiara, a crown, 
has two big elephant tusks around his shoulders, very powerful looking individual, muscular and regal, kind of a Poseidon looking character. But the bottom half of him is a fish because these seafaring people recognize the general fertility of the fish. All the ancient gods were fertility gods. The ancient cultures were obsessed with sex. Well, I'm glad we can say that about our sophisticated and advanced culture today. Fertility, multiplying power. Here was a God who was amphibious. Here was a God who, who would rule the land and the sea. Here was a mighty and a powerful God. And they had a huge image of him in their temple. And when they brought the Ark of the Covenant in to be subservient as a prize, as a, a vassal and a captive, they put it over next to Dagon. The next morning they got up and Dagon had fallen flat upon his face before the Ark of the Covenant. If we had the sense God gave Dagon, we'd fall flat on our face before the Ark of the God of Israel too. That's the proper place. That's where gods belong. That's where all of our gods belong. That's where we belong. Flat on our face before the true and living God. But they were sophisticated enough to realize that these are all just images. These are all just uh, symbols anyway. This is all not really uh, anything to worry about. So they propped their God back up, set him back up. The next morning, they came in and this time he was in the same position. He had fallen flat on his face on the ground before the Lord. But his head and his hands had broken off from the fall. No, they were cut off. There's a difference. They had seen intervention and it literally terrified them. And they realized that something was going on here and they said, what can we do? And so they said, the hand of the Lord's been heavy against us. And the thing that made it really hurtful is that a plague broke out. Two kinds of plagues. One was one of field mouse or rodents, which destroyed the crops and began to do things that brought all kinds of disease and pestilence. But one particular disease was quite menacing. The scriptures call it, they were afflicted with tumors. And this is exactly what it was. And I, I can describe this disease to you because I've read a little bit about it, but I'm just going to say that that it was um, the, euphemistically on, from the backside. And it, they needed an army of proctologists to be able to help them with this disease. It was horrible, it was painful, and it was to the old men and to the young alike. It was awful, it was painful, it was embarrassing, it was absolutely debilitating. It came to the men. So they said, we've got to get rid of this ark. They didn't fall before the ark. They didn't worship the Lord. They didn't change their mind. They remained in their stubborn ways and they got rid of the ark and they did it by calling one of their neighboring Philistine cities. And so they sent the ark then to Gath. When he got to Gath, the same thing happened. These horrible tumors and this pestilence afflicted the people. And the people of Gath said, what in the world's going on? Let's get rid of it here. In fact, they even talked about this was like Egypt. There was an awareness, there was a memory of what God had done in Egypt several centuries earlier and it had lived in this ancient world that they had never seen plagues like this. They had two plagues upon them. Egypt had 10, but two was enough for the Philistines. And they moved the ark of God again. Let's get rid of it, let's get it out of our territory, let's get away from it. And they thought maybe we can send it someplace else. They sent it to their 
fellow Philistines in Ekron. Now it's as close to Israel as it can be geographically, but it is still not in Israel. And the same thing happened in Ekron. And they brought together the priest and the diviners and everyone came together and said, what are we going to do about this? What can we do? And they said, we've got to get rid of it. They said, well, we've left. We just sent it back to Israel. Let's get rid of it. We don't know what to do with it. It's causing our troubles. Let's get it back to Israel. And so they devised a way of doing that. And when their priest said, wait a minute, we've, we've hurt Israel. We've harmed Israel. We've got to make a recompense. We've got to make up for this. So they fashioned a guilt offering. These priests understood a little bit about the doctrine of propitiation <laughs> and appeasement. They understood that an angry deity needed to be placated. And they felt like they needed to have a gift, so they did what they do best. They got their, their goldsmiths together and they made one more time an image. That's all they knew to do in religion was to make idols. That seems like that's our whole, every religious impulse, isn't it? Just to make idols. Just to find something else to fall down before, to devote ourselves to, to become servants and slaves to. But they made these graven images of uh, the mice and the tumors. And they made enough of them that they felt would compensate for all that had happened, not only in the five cities, but in the villages round about. In other words, the whole Philistine territory. And they said, we've got to put a guilt offering in there. And then we need to transport the ark. Well, they had no clue how to go about transporting the ark. The ark, the Lord had given specific instructions to Moses and Aaron as to how the ark was to be transported. These Philistines were untutored in the ways of God, and they just simply devised a way. They thought this will be a good way. We will build a cart, a new cart. We don't want to use an old dirty cart. We'll build a nice new cart and we will put two young milk cows that have just calved and they have uh, no yoke has ever come on them before. So they're not trained in any way. We'll just put this yoke upon them and hook them up to this new cart. We'll put the ark on the cart and alongside that on the back side of the wagon, we'll put these golden offerings of the, the images of the tumors and the mice. And we'll send it back to Israel. This is the part of the story we didn't read, but it's fascinating. You need to read it. They put them on the ark and they took the calves away from these young cows and put them back home, it says. They took them back to their stall. Well, every instinct in a cow is to go with their calf. A cow is not going to leave the calf. Is going to search high and low, going to stay near. You can't move a cow away from her calf. And so they said, if, if there's nothing to this, if there's no power in God, if there's no living God, if there's nothing to it, nature will take its course and these, these cows won't go. But we're going to put it to a test. We're going to see if they will, they will go forward. And it says, let's see if it is the hand of God that has struck us with these plagues or whether it's simply coincidence, random chance. It's the Philistine mind that always believes in random chance over a purposeful and a deliberate and a willful and a working and a living and a mighty God. And the test was if these cows go straight to Israel, unguided and unled and unherded, we'll know that this is God. And that's exactly what the cows did. 
They, as old cows, hooked up to that cart, never had a yoke on them before. What in the world's going on here? Yesterday, we were in the pasture grazing with our little calves, and it was wonderful. The sun was shining, and it was beautiful. And then today, all of a sudden, we're hooked up here, and we're, and we're he- pulling this heavy load, and we're on this cart, and we're on our way. And let me tell you what the old milk cows did. They put the milk cows on the road, and the Bible says that the milk cows headed straight to Israel, and they went to the closest town that they could possibly get to that was appropriate for this. They didn't even get into Israel. They actually went to a border town that was right on the border between the tribe of Dan, the tribe of Benjamin, and the lands of the Philistines. They went straight to Israel. And the Bible says the old cows went along lowing as they went. I can just hear those old cows talking to each other on the way. (laughs) What did we do to deserve this? What's going on now? Where are we going? I don't know. Well, how come we're going right straight together? Well, we're yoked together. Yeah, what's with the yoke? We've never had a yoke before. But lowing as they went, I miss my calves. I do too. It's been feeding time now for a whole day and I'm getting to where I think I need to, to nurse a little. No, keep going. And they went straight to the land of Israel. And they didn't go to a random place, by the way. They didn't turn to the left. They didn't turn to the right. And that's when the Philistines who were following behind followed them all the way to Israel. And the place that they landed up was a town called Beth Shemesh. How many of you have heard of it before I just called out the name this morning? You know all about Beth Shemesh. Oh me, I got more teaching to do. Go back to the book of Joshua where they set up the Levite cities And Beth Shemesh was a Levite city. It was a place where the Levites could dwell and be safe. Because remember, the Levites didn't have any territory in the land. They were just given certain cities and certain places that they could live and and have their uh, uh, homeland. And a Levite city, Beth Shemesh, but it wasn't just a typical one. It was a Kohathite city. You know by now there's three tribes of, of the Levites Three three parts of the tribe, and the Kohathites were the ones that handled the most holy things. It was a Kohathite, Levite city, but it wasn't just your average Kohathite city. It was a city that was inhabited people who had descended from Aaron, Moses' brother, the original first high priest. What a coincidence. They take the ark of God to the best place in Israel that it could possibly go that was nearest to the Philistines. You remember the ark had come from Shiloh where it had been since Joshua left it there. And and Eli and the other priests had served there and Samuel had been reared in that culture. And you you know about Shiloh, but now we're at Beth Shemeth. And when they get there, the people are harvesting their wheat and they look up and they are just thrilled. They rejoiced. Seven months the ark had been stolen. For seven months it had been Ichabod In Israel, the glory had departed. There was no glory. God's Ark of the Covenant was gone. And now all of a sudden, this city filled with Levites, sons and descendants of Aaron, saw the Ark coming on that cart pulled by those poor young cows. And when they got there, there was a great celebration. And there was a lot of rejoicing. And they took the Ark and they set it upon a stone that was out there in the field of Joshua. This is not the original Joshua, but a later. And they put that, by the way, the word Joshua means savior. They put it in the field of Joshua on this great stone. And the stone's still there, even though the ark eventually moved on. The stone is there. 
the ark is there and the people have a celebration. And here's what they do. They take the new cart and they bust it to pieces and they make firewood out of it. And they take the two cows, the milk cows, and they slaughter them and they offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You can't get past the first paragraph in the book of Leviticus before God says He wants a male offering. The firstling of the womb that is a male of the ram, of the bullock, of the goat, of anything, it's a male, not a female. So they've already these descendants these Levites who are supposed to know better are already practicing their faith in an unbiblical manner. And they've done one thing after another. But here's the thing that really got them in trouble. The Bible says that they looked upon the ark. It says... And the Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of God. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. What's going on here? We saw what happens to the ark of God in the hands of the Philistines. God defends His holiness, His righteousness. He defends His existence as the living and the true and the mighty working God. But Israel, God has to purge His own people. And remember the Scriptures had said, the Lord spoke to Moses here and said, let not the tribe of the clans of the kingdoms be destroyed among the Levites. How in the world would the Kohathites, which were part of the Levites, be destroyed? Why was God worried about it? Why did he tell Moses and Aaron to make sure this doesn't happen? But deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. God had given instructions to Aaron to give to the Kohathites, to give to the descendants, to give to the people of Beth Shemeth eventually of how to deal with holy things, the ark of God. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden. Tell them what to do. They're to minister before the Lord. Each one has an assignment. And y'all are familiar with the workings of the ritual of the, of the tabernacle system and the offerings. Teach them how to do that. But, verse 20 of Numbers 4, they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. What's the crime? What, what did they do wrong? Why did God strike down 70 Levites of His own people? It's because they had disobeyed this commandment. And it wasn't that God would strike them down just for looking at the ark, but it's what they did when they looked at the ark. God gave them things to do. He told them what it meant. He explained the furniture. He explained the rituals. He talked about the blood sacrifice, everything that God had outlined for them. God had prescribed their worship. Not even God's people are free to worship God just any old way they want to. 
using any old kind of music they want to, praying any old kind of prayers they want to, having any old kind of rituals they want to. God has prescribed in His Word what He wants from His people by way of true worship of the true and living God. And He said, and if you don't do it, you're just going to die. And it's not just the wrath of God upon a person dying. He said, if you don't worship God right, you are going to die. Your soul is going to shrivel to nothing. You're going to die a spiritual death inside if you do not bring to the Lord the worship that is appropriate for Him. Because this is what this means. Looking at the ark is not just looking at it and seeing it as you minister around the ark, but looking at the ark is to gaze upon it. It's to study it. And what it leads to is vain speculation about God. I can just see a Levite saying, you know what? That's not a very big box. You know what? It's just gold that's around that thing. You know what? We've hauled that thing all over the desert. That's awful small. It doesn't look like... It doesn't move a bit. You know? It doesn't look like a person or an animal or anything. It's just a box. They became vain in their own imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened because they looked at the ark, they gazed, and that speculation and that contemplation and those empty and vain thoughts filled their mind. And from a physical standpoint, they were right. But that ark had been bestowed upon them from God and He represented the very presence of God, the very footstool of God, the very power of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. You can't see that by just staring and gazing. That's got to come to you from the Lord and from His presence. You've got to look at that ark with an eye of faith and not with just your regular old rationalistic eyeballs. And that's what they were doing. It was leading them into a low view and a mundane view and an ungodly and an unholy thought pattern. And they had the same difficulties They ask the question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And that the answer is, no one. No one. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So they called, and here's the final point, they called upon somebody to come and get it. They said, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, and the people there at Beth Shemesh says, come and get it. And the men of Kerioth-Jerim came, and they took of the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to Abinaba on the hill, and his son Eliezer, they consecrated him to be the, the one that handled it. And the ark stayed there for 20 years. We don't have time to go into it, but this particular city was not a Levite city. In fact, it wasn't even an Israeli city. It was a Gibeonite city. Remember, the Gibeonites had deceived Israel And God had not killed them like He killed some of the other tribes, but He had made them hewers of wood and drawers of water. They were servants. And here's a people that's not even a covenant people of God had a fear. They didn't try anything. They just had the presence of God there. And for 20 years, it was, we learned later, it was a blessing to them, a great blessing to them. 
because they honored it. They feared it. They didn't look upon God as familiar. They didn't look upon God as predictable. They didn't look upon God as controllable. They saw God for who He was and they honored Him. Let me read one paragraph and I'm done. It's from the New Testament. It's from the book of Hebrews. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no place else to go other than the truth, the true God, the true and living. There's no salvation. There's no forgiveness. There's no atonement. There's no redemption for you apart from the true and living God. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you don't find your salvation in God, the true and living God through His Son Christ, there's no other place. There's no salvation remaining. There's no another city you can go to, another place you can go to. There's only one way to God, and that is through the truth Himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's where life is. That's the way to God is through Jesus Christ. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Just a couple of three witnesses can get you the death penalty under Mosaic law. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has... And let's check the boxes this morning and ask yourself, have you done this or have you even come close to doing this? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, the cross, the crucifixion, the means of atonement by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? That's what you do when you reject Christ. That's what you do when you walk away from Christ. That's what you do when you say no to Christ. That's what happens. You spurn Jesus. You profane the blood. And you outrage. You infuriate the Holy Spirit. The Bible says there is an unpardonable sin and it's exactly that. It's outraging. Turning your back on. Spurning. God's salvation in Christ and administered and applied by His Holy Spirit. And then finally, in this passage, for we know Him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. Not just the Philistines that stand under the judgment of God. It's God's people when they don't do as God has prescribed for them to do and as God has called them to do. The last verse of that passage, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God.